Welcome to the Mad in America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Our podcasts are made possible in part by a grant from the Thomas Job Fund. Hello, this is James, and welcome to the podcast. And this week, our science writer, Ayurdi Dar, interviews author and health journalist, Dr. Ray Moynihan. But before we get to the discussion, I wanted to let you know that in December, we'll be sharing a special episode of the podcast where Madden America founder Robert Whittaker will be answering your questions. Please send questions to askmia at maddenamerica.com. That's A-S-K-M-I-A at maddenamerica.com. And we will pick a selection. Please send us questions by November 10th and be sure to let us know if you're happy to be identified or if you'd prefer to remain anonymous. And now onto the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mad in America. This is your host for today, Ayurdi Dhar. I am an assistant professor of psychology at the University of West Georgia and a spotlight interviewer at Mad in America. Our guest today is Dr. Ray Moynihan someone whose work I covered when I used to be a science writer here at MIA, maybe like three or four years ago, or maybe more. Clearly, it stayed with me. Um, so here he is, and here I am. He's an academic, a journalist, and while he has numerous awards, uh, journal articles and books to his name, probably my favorite thing about Dr. Moynihan's work remains the mock pharmaceutical video he made about a fake disease called um, motivational deficiency disorder. There was an accompanying piece in the British Medical Journal about it, I think an April Fool prank. So this kind of will be the current focus of our interview today, how diseases are branded, marketed, created, sold, and all of that. And while Dr. Moynihan's work spans across the medical sciences, um, today we will focus uniquely on the psychiatric conditions. Um, Dr. Moynihan, welcome to Mad in America. Ayodi, thank you very much. Great to be here. Very quickly, before we talk about anything else, can you tell us what exactly is disease marketing or disease branding, um, this thing that you have dedicated so many years of your life to work on? People are familiar with the way drugs are marketed, the way pharmaceuticals are marketed. Well, really, uh, a, 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 an equally important, if not more important aspect of marketing is the way that conditions and diseases are marketed. Because if you're the pharmaceutical industry, the bigger those, the wider those uh, diseases, the more people who can be diagnosed with those conditions or diseases, the bigger your markets are. It's, it's quite a simple concept. The marketing of, uh, of, of medical conditions has become a sort of key plank of pharmaceutical industry marketing. And the, the relationships between the medical profession and the pharmaceutical industry uh, and increasingly the patient movements uh, has created this toxic confluence of interests that continue to push the boundaries of medical disease wider and wider and wider so that more and more of ordinary life is defined as a symptom or a sign of medical illness. Tell me about um, your reason for getting into disease marketing and branding. Or where, where, how did this start and why? 
Well, really, it just happened by accident. I was appointed as a, a national medical science reporter at a national TV current affairs program in Australia way back in the 1990s. I was the, the, the national reporter and I started reporting on medicine and I started getting all the press releases from all the vested interests within the world of medicine. Fairly quickly, I realised that there was this sort of subterranean marketing going on. Drug companies weren't just selling pills. They were selling the diseases that would define the markets for those pills. And, and I remember very, very clearly a conversation I had with one of the sort of most sophisticated uh, drug company marketing people in Australia. And she told me that explicitly that what was very, very, very important was preparing the market before a new drug was launched. Um, and this applies as much as it does in the mental illness world as it does everywhere in medicine. Preparing the market, helping widen the definitions of disease um, is, is a key part of marketing that pharmaceutical product. So when I, when I saw all this sort of marketing machinery, when I had those conversations, really my life changed. I, I, I left, um, I left uh, being a reporter. I went off and started writing, um, writing books. My first book was called Too Much Medicine. I got a Harkness Fellowship and went to Harvard to kind of study this stuff more. Um, I mean, I kept reporting, but I, I, I became more and more engaged in reporting on and investigating the business of medicine. And the stories just kept coming and coming and coming. So is this what then um, inspired you to have the video for motivational deficiency disorder and the April Fool piece along with it? What was that about? That's exactly right. Now, because I, because, because I was witnessing so much, I mean, what's crassly called disease mongering, you know, the creation, the manufacturing of these of these broad new definitions of disease and because I was witnessing that so often um, and because I was talking to critics within the medical establishment as well I mean I started to write for the British Medical Journal in fact we launched um, you know we, we launched essentially a campaign about the problem of too much medicine 20 years ago in the British Medical Journal that's continued and so there was a lot of concern among a lot of very well-informed senior doctors and researchers and scientists around the world about and 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 people as well the public civil society as well there was a lot of concern and so it it struck me as a, a and colleagues as a kind of fun thing to do to to have a go at creating our own disease and using all those what were becoming very obvious marketing strategies so i can't remember exactly what the prevalence was but i think it was one in 3 or one in 5 <laughs> And, and, you know, when, whenever you hear one in three or one in five people suffer from something, you really need to start to feel sceptical because, you know, you, you're, you're dealing with marketing, not science. 
I should credit my my co-author and uh, colleague and friend Alan Cassells, who I co-wrote Selling Sickness with uh, back in those days. He came up with an early version of motivational deficiency disorder. Um, I and other colleagues picked that up and took it and ran with it, and we created this little video. I think it's called The New Epidemic, and it is quite funny. <laughs> we talked about how laziness you know, all my life, people have called me lazy, but now we know I was suffering from motivational deficiency disorder. And of course, we created and launched a drug to treat it uh, called Strivor, which has sold very well around the world. Um, and uh, and then we developed screening tests. You know, this were many years later, but we developed screening tests. We found then that, of course, there were genetic markers for motivational deficiency disorder. And, uh, and we discovered that the prevalence, uh, you know, just got larger and larger. We redefined the condition. When we redefined it, we broadened the definition so that, you know, so that more and more people could benefit from the treatment. So it was a fun thing to do. And we did actually uh, launch it in the British Medical Journal on April the 1st, I believe, in 2006. You know, as hilarious as this is, uh, the terrifying part is that I have seen this happen to real conditions over and over and over. I mean, in your book, you talk about uh, prevalence rates keep shifting from one in two to one in three to one in 10 to back something. And that probably is a big marker that something is off too. So people believed you. Did that happen? You know, it's funny. It's funny when we launched it in the BMJ on April the 1st, uh, we, I, I believe we put out a press release. We wrote a story, a news story. Uh, this was with colleagues. Um, and, and the truth of it is a lot of journalists around the world took it seriously at that time. And I think I'm writing saying it, that we got a call from the Wall Street Journal. And the Wall Street Journal journalist called up one of my colleagues who was featured in this uh, new disease. And my colleague didn't play along. He immediately admitted to the Wall Street Journal that this was a joke. And so the Wall Street Journal never pursued it. And it's very possible that the Wall Street Journal journalist knew it was a joke. But but anyway, leaving that aside, sadly, or perhaps fortuitously for us, uh, one newspaper in New Zealand did take the thing seriously and put it on their front page. And so laziness was the sign of a, of a medical condition called motivational deficiency disorder in this big story on the front page of, of a paper in New Zealand. When they discovered that it was a it was a April's Fool's Day joke, they were very very unhappy, and I'm I'm not sure they've ever reported on the BMJ <laughs> ever again. But but I think I think it was uh, I think it was a great intervention, and I think that humour can be so powerful. And and it's important to say that you know when we're talking about creating conditions. We're not in any way trying to demean the genuine suffering of people. There are real conditions. There are real mental health conditions. There are real medications that offer enormous benefits for millions of people. But there is absolutely not a doubt in the world that we have extended boundaries too much. We are treating people who don't need treatment, who won't benefit from treatment, um, and we are we are promoting drugs that will ultimately cause many people more harm than good. This reminds me of uh, Nick Haslam's work, uh, Concept Creep. He has been talking about how concepts in psychology have been broadening uh, from what constitutes bullying to abuse to any you know a lot of other things. 
And um, that that's happening in popular discourse and how that then, you know, contributes to the broadening of diagnosis and how they loop into each other, of course. That is fascinating. And the other word that we use sometimes to describe this process is diagnosis creep. Uh, people might have been familiar with that. Um, diagnosis creep is this thing, this phenomenon, this process of, of diagnoses just creeping further and further and further outwards, broader and broader. Almost universally, whenever a body of experts gets together to review the definitions of a condition as they do with high blood pressure, with type 2 diabetes, with depression, with social anxiety disorder, whatever it is, whenever those bodies get together to review it, almost inevitably they will widen the definitions. And I think, um, you know, th this, is, this is a serious problem. It's a serious assault on what it means to be human and thankfully, it is getting more and more attention within, uh, within the world of med medical science and, and from policymakers as well. That's where we come to, you know, actual pharmaceutical corruption, the collusion with doctors or something else. So let's get into that. Um, your book, Selling Sickness, with uh, Alan Cassells. Um, you write that uh, the way a lot of the way pharmaceutical and also device manufacturing industries affect or influence people's mind is often through fear, right? And there are these multiple strategies and you give so many examples from depression to ADHD to female sexual dysfunction and we'll try and touch upon those. But let me ask you then quickly, one of the particular strategies, right, which is directly influencing doctors, um, how are disease branded and marketed to, to doctors, not just pills, but diseases? Well, I think you know the, the sad thing is that it is it is this multi-layered marketing strategy that 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 wraps many medical professionals and healthcare professionals in a sort of a world of marketing from the cradle to the grave. You know, when medical students are exposed to pharmaceutical marketing, that they will attend you know, meetings, conferences, parties where, where you know, where, where the drug companies are sponsoring it. Um, and then, you know, then the, 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 the doctor graduates and goes out into the world and so much of the continuing medical education that, that doctors receive in many countries around the world is still, uh, you know, heavily sponsored. By, by pharmaceutical interests. Scientific conferences that doctors go to uh, are again predominantly still funded, sponsored by, by, by pharmaceutical companies. The journals that doctors read, many of them are still sponsored by pharmaceutical advertising. Some doctors are still seeing drug reps where they are getting that 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 direct face-to-face -face palpable influence from the attractive well-educated drug representative and now of course in in the age of the internet and social media there are untold other numbers of ways in which doctors would be being marketed to uh, that 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 I'm embarrassed that I have not yet investigated but having said all that there are many doctors and and even doctors groups now that have have acknowledged this as a problem 
and are trying to to move away, are trying to seek independent uh, information, independent forms of of um, evidence, and so on and so forth. And there are ways of doing that. It's about promoting particular ideas about human conditions. It's about framing human misery as the signs of mental illness. It's about framing aging essentially as a, as a condition of decay and and disease. And I'll never forget one one doctor I spoke to in Australia quite some time back saying, yeah, I've stopped going to those scientific conferences now. I've just stopped. I, I just can no longer go to those sponsored scientific conferences because of the smell. I mean, it's being metaphoric. You know, it wasn't actually a smell, but it was that, that stench of corruption. And, and I remember myself the first time the first few times I went to to scientific conferences sponsored by drug companies where that where the audience were doctors, I could not believe what I saw. It I mean without I don't want to infantilize anyone, but it it the, the, the these professionals were acting like children. They were lining up to receive little tiny shiny toys from the drug company stands and I I, I frankly just couldn't believe it. Now, I don't know whether that still happens. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. But, but, but I mean, the, the, you know, I don't want to trivialise these issues. They're important issues. But, but the the crassness, the crude, the crudity of some of these marketing strategies is is phenomenal. And and sadly, the public often is not invited into those conferences. It's not invited in to the sponsored medical education. And yet that is where the prescribing clinician, the prescribing doctor, that's where the psychiatrist, that you know, that's where they're getting their information. Um, and 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 if we get time, there was a there was a particular early psychiatric conference that I went to that absolutely astounded me and horrified me. The main uh, sponsors of the conference were all the big global drug companies that everyone everyone knows of, Pfizer and Merck and all of Roche and all, all of those companies. And the guy I was seeing speaking, I think he was actually the convener of the conference. He'd organised the conference. This man had the most extraordinary skill when he gave a short talk about you know, contemporary treatments for depression, he managed to do the most extraordinary product placement I have ever seen. Every one of those sponsors of that conference, every one of them got got a moment in his speech where their latest antidepressant was given the limelight. And, And this was dressed up as a scientific talk from a leading psychiatrist in Australia and it was the most shocking, crude marketing I had ever seen. Um, and people might know this this concept of product placement. It's where you place a product into a context and try and kind of disguise it or hide it. It's the same thing for me. Um, you wonder, like, how can people not? How can the how can the clinicians not see it? Right? Like, they see all these banners at a conference. They see that, as you mentioned in your book, that. Each of the beautiful lunch that they are attending is usually at the time of a big pharmaceutical talk, so they can eat really delicious food, but they have to also listen. 
So how is it not transparent? And I remember um, Eric Turner, who worked for the FDA, talked about that. Like, why are we not skeptical to the same degree? You know what? I, th- I think the I think part of the answer to that is that I think a lot of clinicians believe that they are immune from that influence. But I think the evidence suggests otherwise. The evidence, whenever people have studied this problem, whenever people have looked and tried to understand and investigate the impacts of pharmaceutical marketing, they have found that it is effective. We know that doctors who attend those sponsored meetings come away having received more favourable messages towards the sponsor's product and their subsequent prescribing of those products um, you know, demonstrates that. And, and the problem here is not that people are prescribing drugs. That in itself is not a problem. The problem is that those drugs are often being over-prescribed and those drugs carry a range of side effects. And for some people, those side effects will outweigh the benefits. That is the problem. And, and, and I think that a rational society, a rational medical system would organise the education of their doctors and health professionals in a different way. And, you know, and I think we are seeing that. I think the Norwegian Medical Association some time ago now said, you know, if you want to um, receive ongoing professional medical education points, you won't get them if you co- if you go to a, an industry-sponsored gathering. You will get them if you go to an independent piece of medical education and I you know I think I'm right in saying that you'll probably find similar situations within places like Kaiser Permanente in the US if that's if Kaiser is still a a thing um, you will find you will probably find that they would incentivize their GPs and their doctors their family doctors their specialists and physicians uh, to to attend to attend medical education that's not sponsored. I think, I think I'm right in saying that the VA, the Veterans Affairs uh, Organization in the US, those big, that big publicly funded chunk of the healthcare system, I think you would find that doctors there would be disincentivized, if not discouraged, if not banned from attending drug company funded so-called education. When we're talking about influencing doctors directly, right, depression is the example that you have given. And this idea of depression as a simple chemical imbalance, as a serotonin imbalance, which you you and um, Alan Cassells wrote this book a, bit, a while ago. And there, there is quite clearly that you've said, you know, there is a the evidence about the serotonin hypothesis is debated, outdated, and simplistic. And we have had research after research that agrees with that and still that doesn't die. So I just wanted to know a little bit about um, this selling of the simple serotonin theory to clinicians that this is all it is. And as a result, you know, here is a pill that can fix it. Can you tell us a little, little bit about what you found about depression? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think in Selling Sickness, we wrote about um, we wrote about a drug rep who, you know, who, who spent his life just taking donuts to doctors. And, 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 you know, I'm not sure whether drug reps uh, still deliver donuts to doctor surgeries, but, um, but, but talk about crude, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, and, 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 and part of, um, part of what the drug reps are, are selling is, 
is exactly what you identify, is that sort of oversimplistic chemical imbalance narrative. Now, you know, I'm I'm a journalist and a researcher. I'm I'm not a, a neurobiologist. Uh, I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm not a medical doctor. Um, and so, you know, to 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 to, to really drill into that issue, you're going to have to go there to talk to them. But I I think it's fair to say that that narrow explanation of depression is overly simplistic. It is outdated, and and you know. I'm sure for some people, though those 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 neurotransmitters have a role. You know, I'm sure. I'm sure. Of course, there is a role there, but everyone knows that there are so many factors that produce the distress, the misery, the suffering that we describe as these medical conditions. You know, framing that narrative about how these drugs work, uh, and and promoting that narrative through all the sponsored medical education and all the 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 scientific conferences, using the key opinion leaders funded by the companies, you know that that is that is vitally important. It's vitally important, and so you know you ask about how this works, and it works because. A lot of uh, prescribing doctors are learning about the sort of neurobiology or learning about the the, the chemical imbalance from um, senior respected specialists who often just happen to be on the payroll of the same companies selling the drugs. But I think that to, to learn about this, to learn about these deep marketing strategies is ultimately empowering. Because it it helps us all be just that little more, that little better informed, that little bit more able to negotiate our own healthcare needs through the system. Yeah, I I, I think that learning about these marketing strategies, becoming more informed about the the way in which you know your doctors are are being informed, can can actually help. Um, I mean, I I tend to agree. I- at least while I was in the U.S., I would, before going to a doctor, check the government database for how much money a doctor is getting. And it did help me, um, for sure. It's a fantastic resource. It's called the Open Payments uh, website. It's run by the, by, the, by the federal government in the U.S. It's well-funded. It's, it's beautifully put together. It's a, it's, it's a result of a law called the Sunshine Act that was passed more than a decade ago in the U.S., and uh, every, you know, all the drug companies and device makers have to reveal exactly how much they have paid to every single uh, medical professional and the name of that medical professional. So as you say, you can go to that database, you can put your doctor's, your specialist name in there, and you can check just how much money he or she may have received from industry um, over the last year or the last 10 years. And in 2022, last year, drug and device makers (laughs) made payments to US healthcare professionals of almost 20 billion Australian dollars, 20 billion Australian dollars. And, um, you know, a lot of those payments were for research, but as we as we know from the evidence, 
a lot of that research is well it, it all of that research, all of those research payments are industry funded research there are huge questions often around industry funded research a lot of a lot of the other part proportions of those payments are to pay these key opinion leaders these senior uh, specialists that we're talking about who who then educate their peers and 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 their colleagues um, and and some of that money is you know, is, is, is just close to, to bribery, really. Yes, because, because there is clear evidence that research that is industry-funded tends to produce results that are pro-industry. Um, and uh, we've covered that on Man in America a fair bit. Um, the thing um, I wanted to say was, I know you said that as a journalist, you don't really have uh, authority or expertise to speak about neurobiology. But what I did find in the book was that as a journalist, you and uh, Alan Cassells had the ability to see patterns. So there was this interesting pattern that emerged for different psychiatric disorders, which those are chapters I read. Um, and that was one, the, the prevalence rate changes. Hey, it's one in three. No, it's one in 10 now. Oh no, it's one in 15. Oh no, it's one in five people who have this, right? So there is a massive shift within each disorder with that. But the other was that there is a lot of debate and controversy to take the example of the serotonin hypothesis. And that is usually just pushed under. So when there is a key opinion leader who comes up and talks about, let's say, Prozac being amazing or, or you know, Seroxata or whatever, depending on where they are, they never address the debate and the controversy. The more you learn about science, as you would know, uh, you know, the more uncertain it becomes. And so, again... If if you hear a professor or 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 or, or if your doctor, uh, you know, paints a picture of sort of absolute certainty around healthcare decisions or healthcare treatment options, you know, for me that is a red flag. That's a concern because because medical science is 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 incredibly uncertain. Uh, you know, there is so much human variation. There are lots of lot lots of factors. And so you're absolutely right. And I mean, the other the the other example, just to to flag it just briefly, that we investigated was social anxiety disorder, and and we and we were able to track, you know, almost in real time, the launch and the marketing of that relatively new condition, and the PR companies that worked with the drug companies won awards for their extraordinary work helping to reposition that that condition helping to frame it as uh you know essentially reframing shyness as a symptom of a serious psychiatric condition that required drug treatment you know an extraordinary coup for those companies and those PR companies and now you know, spool for 20 years, social, anxi social anxiety disorder has become a kind of a, you know, a, it's, it's become an uncontroversial part of the, of the medical establishment and the way, things are, uh, the way things are understood. But, you know, when you, when you drill into the history of many conditions and you, and you look at the way prevalence rates have changed, you're right, they change all the time. 
but in fact they tend to get larger <laughs> rather than smaller. Um, and so and so it's it's rare to see a disease go the other way. And and so this blurring of the boundaries between ordinary life and medical conditions, again, is a is a is a major red flag. And it's something that we all need to be cautious about in our own lives and the lives of our loved ones. Tell me about what is the most egregious or ridiculous passing of a drug that you have seen the FDA or some other red regulatory body do? There are so many, and I think there are so many to choose from. And, and it, you know, it's sad. We're laughing, but it is, it is sad to watch those regulatory bodies become so captured by the very industries they're supposed to be regulating. And, and I think one of the most egregious examples I can think of is the, the drug, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but th there was a drug called flibanserin. It was, a, it was an antidepressant. Originally, it never worked as an antidepressant. Uh, antidepressant. So it was a failed antidepressant that, that somehow the pharmaceutical industry thought they could use as a drug to treat something called female sexual dysfunction, um, something called hypoactive sexual desire disorder, both of which are incredibly controversial uh, concepts anyway. Um, you know, the attempts to market uh, female sexual dysfunction and, and desire disorders is itself one of the most egregious examples I've ever seen. You wrote a book about it. I did. I, it was called Sex, Lies and Pharmaceuticals. The, the attempt to say that one in two women suffer from female sex, sexual dysfunction, you know, is just the grossest insult that, that you could ever imagine. But that is exactly what groups of medical scientists did in alliance with, with drug companies and, and others. You know, this attempt to medicalize what is obviously widespread sexual, sexual dissatisfaction driven by multiple factors from, for, you know, that we could, you know, that the feminists have been talking about for decades, you know, to, to, to sort of capture and use that, 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 that sort of um, that distress, that dissatisfaction and try and turn it into a, a condition to, to sell drugs was just, again, the most ex egregious example. But getting back to the drug, flibanserin, it kept getting put up to the FDA and it kept getting rejected because it didn't work. It, it did not help women. It, it caused potentially very serious harm. And then a very smart group of pharmaceutical marketers came along they they somehow bought the rights to this this failed drug that kept failing and they ran the most extraordinary campaign called even the score to cut a long story short they created a fake grassroots campaign which another way of saying that is is astroturfing they they created a fake grassroots campaign that looked like a feminist campaign to even the score, and that meant that um, you know the FDA had approved these drugs for men for their sexual dysfunction, erectile dysfunction, and so on, but no drugs had been approved for women. So this was not fair. They framed it as a feminist issue. This was not fair. We need to even the score, and and the trouble was the drug didn't work, and the drug had harms, but 
Nevertheless, this campaign was so successful, they recruited senior feminist organisations. It was hugely controversial. Other feminist groups were outraged by this. Big controversy came before an advisory committee of the, the FDA and the FDA advisory committee passes and approves the drug. And now, now that, that drug is, is so awful that I don't think even the best marketers in the world have been able to create a large number of sales. And I think that is a credit to the women of the US and wherever else this has been approved, that people have been able to see through the marketing of both the condition and the drug. Yeah, and, and not to forget that it was marketed as a female Viagra, but Viagra is a once-a-time pill. This you have to take every day and you can't drink and you can't do anything. I think my favorite part, and this I, I show this to my students when we look at research, was when they were trying to see the effects of the drug with alcohol, they tested it on, if, if I'm, I, I should check the numbers, they, they tested the effects of this drug meant for women on 40 men. Because the thing was, they could not find women who were moderately drinking. It's just... <laughs> this brings us to patient advocacy groups, right? Which look so good on paper. Uh, they are ground, you know, ground level uh, movements. And, uh, but often what people don't know is these groups that come and inform them and that they, they say they're advocates for patients... Uh, are funded massively by, again, drug manufacturing and device manufacturing companies. And so tend to say things that are that put these companies in a positive light. So I wanted you to say a little bit about maybe um, the example you give in your book is ADHD. Can you tell us a little bit about that? ADHD, patient advocacy groups. This is a huge problem. And increasingly, a drug company marketing has has broadened from just targeting doctors to also targeting patient groups. And I think uh, I remember a study that was done not so long ago looked at um, all of the, the patient advocacy groups in a certain country, and I think they found that something like 60% of them received some form of pharmaceutical company funding. So this is a very large problem. Now, consumer groups, the advocacy groups that don't take industry money will often have a more evidence-based, evidence-informed approach and a much more reliable approach when it comes to controversial issues around disease prevalence or, or, or new drugs and their potential harms and their potential benefits. Um, and, and yes, you're right, with ADHD or with ADD, as it was known then, there was a big patient group called CHAD. Now, CHAD may still exist, I'm not sure, but CHAD, that patient group was absolutely central to the sort of early marketing of, of, of ADD as a, as a widespread condition that is severe and needs treatment. Um, but I think I'm right in saying that there is enough evidence around to show that that ADHD and ADD is being diagnosed in people, many, many, many young people and now adults with very mild problems. And there are, you know, there's, there's strong evidence from 
from large uh, observational studies showing that if if you are a child in a classroom who happened to be the youngest in that classroom, you are more likely to be diagnosed as having ADD or ADHD. And, and that is a classic red flag for overdiagnosis, for too much diagnosis and so on. But getting back to your question, yes, the patient group's will form alliances with the drug companies and form alliances with relevant doctors groups to form these powerful coalitions of interest that that seem to have a shared interest in wanting to to say that the prevalence of this condition is as big as possible so again you know in in the US you have a you have a a non-industry funded mega consumer group called Consumer Reports, whatever people might think about Consumer Reports, but 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 they are they don't take a cent of drug company money, uh, to my knowledge, and they produce information about drugs and medical conditions and so on. You can you can look at things like Cochrane reviews of the evidence about drugs. I just wouldn't be looking at 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 industry funded patient group websites because the chances are I'm going to be misled um, you know so so I think there are things people can do to sort of protect themselves as much as possible from the uh, from the marketing spin you write in your book that often patient advocacy groups would would give out their, you know, their, uh, a patient for an interview to, to the media. This is the perfect patient and they can give this narrative that, you know, this is how I felt and then I found out I had a disorder. So what is the responsibility of media and journalism in this whole story? And on a more personal level, as a journalist, you have conducted so many interviews around this. What is the most memorable thing that you remember, you know, person you talked to an interview you did let me answer the second part of the question first i mean i th- i think I-, I think look two things when i sat down with that marketing expert 20 25 years ago and she told me that that working with the drug companies is not just about marketing drugs it's about preparing the field cultivating the field you know developing uh the awareness of the condition you know that that just, I mean it changed my life, but it but it also was the most honest thing <laughs> that you know that I think I've ever heard out of the mouth of one of these marketers. And I've been so encouraged by how much interest there is in this problem within the medical establishment. You know, and that and that is just increasing all the time. I helped set up an organization called Preventing Overdiagnosis, which is a global collaboration of, of, of scientists, researchers, clinicians, you know, consumers, which is dedicated to try and uncover and investigate this problem of too many diagnoses and work out how to get away from it. The other thing, the other interview I did once, and this is right at the beginning of my career as a medical journalist, I sat in a, a doctor's surgery with a young doctor who had just diagnosed like a four-year-old with ADHD or ADD and and had prescribed amphetamines. And I sat in and I sat in that surgery. We were making a, a TV documentary at the time about ADHD, about ADD on national television in Australia. And that doctor said, Yes, well, yeah, I did do that. I did diagnose, I did prescribe. 
but you know that kid's probably not the best example of someone with ADHD. In fact, it's probably quite borderline. I'm not even sure that he really needed the diagnosis or the drug. Now, that doctor told me that. (laughs) He did not tell the parent of that child that, and he certainly didn't tell that child that. And that the, the 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 obscenity of that situation where that child's narrative was changed forever, possibly unnecessarily, the obscenity of that stays with me to this moment and and just drives me to want to call out this problem of too much medicine, of too many medical diagnoses. So the first part of your question, does the media have a responsibility here? Absolutely. And and I've spent a lot of time over the last 10 or 20 years trying to work with my colleagues in the media to get awareness of these problems and to report better. 20 years ago, I put out a, a tip sheet for journalists on how to do better. My first study that I published in the New England Journal of Medicine was about the way the media buys drug company spin far too often and over you know over exaggerates benefits of drugs downplays harm um i i joined the association of healthcare journalists in america and we did a series of 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 educational seminars for other journalists in the u.s about these issues you know there's an enormous receptivity among journalists uh, to, to, to want to report better. You know, but the sad thing is there are still very high-profile journalists accepting, directly accepting money from pharma companies in the same way that many, many senior doctors do. It, it's, it's utterly appalling. It's a huge conflict of interest, but, but medicine is rife with conflict of interest, as you know. Um, I've written about that, you know, too, too, too many awards for medical journalists are, are still funded by by drug companies, um, but you know, think thing, things are changing. People are, um, you know, are hopefully generally becoming uh, developing more of a healthy scepticism towards these things, and in, including many journalists. So, you know, I'm optimistic that these problems are being better understood, and that solutions. Uh, will be found. But, you know, I don't think we'll ever get to a situation where these problems are fixed. I think that while ever we have corporations in the medical space, we are going to need strong, uh, well-informed civil society and regulatory structures to, to try and keep the marketing campaigns in check. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. For more news, views and updates, visit maddenamerica.com.